Happy Easter, everybody. I am so excited about this day and to be here with you. I love the Loretta story. We worked on it with her for a while. And, you know, there, you, how do you get a story down to five minutes, right? We had to cut some stuff out. But, but the favorite part of my story was when she was on the plane back to New York City after her encounter with God. And she kept saying to herself, this is so real. This is so real. How come nobody knows about this? And she had a pretty big position in New York City, and so her real resolution was, I'm calling the New York Times, and I'm going to let them know that this is real, like, and people need to know that Jesus is alive and is still doing things to change people's lives. For Loretta, right, she wanted to report news. It, that's what the experience was. Um, and it's interesting because if you've been with us in this series, that's what Peter is uh, Peter, Jesus' most famous disciple. That's what he's reporting to his traveling companion, John Mark. It's called, we call it the gospel, the good news, because that's what Christianity was for Peter. He, he wanted Mark to understand that this is news. People need to know. It needs to get out. Loretta had the same experience. And so Peter, when we, we join him in his story, his most famous disciple, Jesus, is he's awaiting his own crucifixion now in Rome under Nero, he begins his story. Mark writes it down. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Because again, for Peter, it was that simple. He wanted Mark to tell you and I what he believed. And again, he still believed, even though his current circumstances, right, as he's awaiting execution, his current circumstances could have easily led him to change his mind about this. He said, no, 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 you got to tell them there's good news. That was it. Peter has news. What was it about? It was about Jesus, whom he calls here the Christ. In Greek, it was the word Christos. It meant the anointed one. It meant that Jesus was king. I have good news about Jesus the king. And again, some 30 years after Jesus had died, Peter still believed and had Mark write down that his friend, his teacher, was not just the king, but the Son of God. He was not a teacher. He was not a philosopher. He was not a prophet. He was not merely a good man. Some 30 years later, Peter's going, no, he's, he's the king of all kings, and, and he's the Son of God. It's news. Is it good? Well, Peter would spend three years with Jesus, who went to town to town, proclaiming this news. What was the news specifically about Jesus, this king, this son of God? Well, he starts right in Galilee, where he actually winds up meeting Peter for the first time. It's in the northern part of Israel. And Peter tells Mark that Jesus went there into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And here it is. Here's the news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. That was the news. In the midst of the, the Roman Empire, where Caesar had declared himself both the divine son of God, right, and that he had a gospel. You would see around town the gospel of Caesar. It was even written on coins, as we've seen over the last few weeks. He wanted everyone in the world, Caesar wanted everyone to know he was the divine son of God. He, he could bring peace to the world. He was the, the prince of peace himself. And, and Jesus walks on the scene and goes, no, 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 no. There's a new king. That's come, and there's a new kingdom. It's, it's really close. In fact, it's so close, you could come into it. And why was it close? Because where Jesus the king goes, so comes his kingdom. 
And so that was the news. There was a new king in a new kingdom. It's essentially what Loretta was sitting on the, on the plane going, I got to call the times. And we've seen, right? What do you have to do with news? That was Jesus' message about the news. He would go town to town. He, he would proclaim the kingdom of God. And then he would say, repent and believe the good news. Believe that it's true. And then reorient your life around its truth. That's what it meant to, to repent. It means to swap out the way you used to think. You see this in Loretta's life. And in terms of life and kingdoms, in terms of your purpose, your identity, how you gain peace, what it is that protects you, how you define success and failure, what love and war and strength and weakness, how do you see them now? The way the kingdoms of this world make you think about these things, you should think about them now differently in light of a new kingdom. Don't just believe differently. Live differently. Let the truth inform how you live. Reorient your life around it. And what Peter would tell Mark is that for the next three years, he, by Jesus' side, he and Jesus would go town to town with that same message. The king has come. A, a new king is now on the scene, and you are invited into a new and a better kingdom. He'd spend three years validating that message for everyone, not just with this teaching, but also miracle after miracle. Mark, because Peter told them about these, Mark would document 22 of them. Jesus would claim to be divine, have authority over sin and sickness, and then he would prove it by healing people. Peter would tell you, I didn't believe either what I was seeing, but right there in front of me, he just kept proving it, that he had power over life and death and even nature. And if you read the Gospel of Mark, I've been, I've been asking you over and over to read it again over the, these last couple weeks. You could read it in an hour. What you'll see is that in every chapter but two, Mark keeps citing crowds. There's crowds everywhere. Why? Well, you got this teacher that's teaching like no one else ever has, and he's doing all of these things. And so, so people want a part of this king and, and this kingdom, which is also why both the temple rulers and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, along with the, the Roman-installed puppet leaders in Israel under Herod, that is why these strange bedfellows who couldn't agree on anything, actually agreed on this one thing. Jesus had to die. Kings proclaiming new kingdoms with huge crowds are very threatening to existing kings and rulers, even religious ones. Which gets us to, well, it gets us to why we're here this morning. Because they killed him. That's what happens to rebel rousers in Rome and so-called messiahs when they show up in Jerusalem. It had happened before, and it was happening again. And that's why everyone that had been following Jesus on this morning some 2,000 years ago is in hiding. That's why days before they had all, they had all fleed. That's why they had all abandoned Jesus. This is why Peter, and again, how embarrassing is it for Peter to share this story, right? The criterion of embarrassment is kind of an apologetic tool to, it's what historians use to show if some account might actually be true, a, a, a historical account, and why would an eyewitness write something that would be embarrassing to him? Peter does it over and over again, right? Peter says, I denied him three times, once even to a middle, middle school-aged girl. Why? Because followers of fake kings and messiahs, well, when they're found out, they usually face the same uh, end that their supposed cult leader would. 
Peter knew it. So did all of the others. And that's why they were all gone, scattered, in hiding, planning on, I mean, Peter's plan, by all accounts, would be that he would be heading back north, back up to Galilee where he had met Jesus and join in the family fishing business. And I mean, if you enter the story, what a disappointment, right? I mean, how quickly things had just turned from last week. It had hardly been any time at all since Jesus had asked Peter the, the question that, well, that I've been encouraging every one of you to ask. It was the one that Jesus had spent his three years of ministry trying to answer for Peter and for us. Jesus had asked them, who do the people say that I am? After all of this teaching and all of these miracles, who do they say that I am? And the disciples had responded, well, Jesus, the people, they think you're some kind of prophet. Well, not much has changed from then to today. I would say, I would argue increasingly today, people view Jesus as a, as a great teacher or some kind of prophet. But then he looked at the disciples who he'd been walking with for three years, and he goes, what about you? Who do you say I am? And for Peter and the rest of the disciples, their answer that day to that question would change their lives. And, and as we answer that question, I, I, I promise you, it will change your life. No matter how you answer that question, it will change your life. And for the disciples, and for us, not, not always in the way we want or the way we're thinking. Peter answers Jesus. He says, I, I think you are who you say you are. You are the Messiah. You, you are the Savior. You are the anointed one of God. You are the king of all kings. You are indeed the final king. If you've been with us over these last weeks, even Friday night, you know this is where the story dramatically turns. Mark is 16 chapters. This happens in the 8th chapter. He spends 8 chapters trying to convince us who he is, of who he is, and then immediately everything changes because the moment Peter makes this pro proclamation, the moment he answers the question that's been building up over all these years, everything switches. Immediately, Jesus begins to warn them about what's going to happen to the king fact Peter and Mark write it down Peter had Mark write it down three times mostly because I think Peter was like trying to explain to Mark we didn't get it we didn't get it and we didn't want to get it because we didn't get it <laughs> next chapter he said to them this is Jesus the son of man is going to be delivered into uh, um, it, excuse me let me um, let me let me start with the first one Peter says you are the Messiah you're the king Immediately, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. If you know the story, this is where Peter gets in a fight with him. He, he rebukes Jesus about this idea. Why? There's a lot of reasons, but one of them is this. Peter knows what happens to followers of fake messiahs, Right? If that's going to happen to Jesus, what's going to happen to me? Next chapter, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Of course they were. Next chapter. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he'll rise. 
three times over and over every time they missed it. They didn't want to hear it because they were afraid. Because they had plans for Jesus the king. If Jesus is the king, what's that make them? They're the court. If, they had, if Jesus had power, they would have authority. If Jesus was going to reign, well, then it was going to be them that were going to rule. And that's why each time Peter tells Mark that Jesus said these things, he immediately, Peter immediately shares how, and it's almost strange, how they were still arguing over who was going to be the greatest. Jesus kept speaking of a different kind of kingdom. He said it's a kingdom of the heart, a kingdom of the conscious, where love is the highest and singular command. Where the first would be last, the last would be first. Where to be great, you were going to have to be a servant, a slave to all. Where if you want to save your life, you would lay it down. Not for the king. That's the way that the Gentiles and the kingdoms of this world work. No, 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 you don't lay it down. In my kingdom, you don't lay down your life for me. You lay it down for others. Where the values were things like grace and forgiveness and patience and kindness and gentleness. Where the meek and the mourners would be blessed and the emperors and the empires would be cast down. This is a different kind of king. One who by his own word says, I came to serve and not be served. One who came to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a different kind of king. It's a different kind of kingdom. Where being great looked very different than Peter and the other boys wanted it to. If I'm honest, it looks a little different than I'd like it to. And so, when the Gentiles do to Jesus what Jesus told them, they would do to him. Peter and the disciples, they don't go, oh yeah, remember what he said? Remember how he told us over and over it was going to go down just like that? So this is day one. It's Friday. I think what we should do is we should begin to just camp out by the gravesite because we know we're only about 72 hours away from Jesus walking out of their grave. All of the disciples don't gather up all their families and friends and go, come, we're going to show you that we were right and you were all wrong. Watch, watch, we're going to go to the grave. You can see Peter out there, sun's coming up, he's counting down 10, 9, 8. It's not how it went down. They don't go to the grave. They go home. Here's how... Mark recorded it. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who himself, I love this, was waiting for the kingdom of God. He, he was kind of hoping to, right? He went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. And so summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. And so Joseph bought some linen cloth, took the body down, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out on the rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Twelve disciples walking in the dust of their rabbi for three years. The night Jesus died... How many were there? None the next day. Who's left watching from a distance? Two women. 
And if you know the story of the resurrection, ladies, I have to tell you, it's the women who are the heroes of the story. Again, for Peter, a little bit of a criterion of embarrassment. And how about Joseph of Arimathea, right? Being there is such a shock to the writers of these stories, right? Because he's, this story, Joseph of Arimathea is included in all four Gospels. Why? Because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish council that had actually called for the execution of Jesus. It shows you how powerful a teacher Jesus must have been, how profound his miracles were, that even a member of the council was like, you know, I thought he was who he said he was, but I guess not. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Now, let me ask you a question, ladies. If Joseph had already done this, if Joseph had already taken care of Jesus' body, prepared it, why are the women now going to do this? Do you know? Because the men didn't do it right. You know the answer to that. <laughs> Same reason my wife reloads the dishwasher. She watches, and she goes, well, when he's not looking, I'll go fix this up. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they weren't there counting down. They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter. I like that one. It's almost as if the angel knows. Yeah, Peter, the one that denied this three times, right? <laughs> Peter, the one that's telling this story. Go tell the disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee, back up north where, where he had met them. There you'll see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone. Why? Because they were afraid. Unlike, this is super interesting. I don't know if you know this. Unlike the other Gospels, which continue with the story from here, with all of the elements and the details that most of you would be familiar with, doubting Thomas and Jesus coming into the room and showing the wounds, this is where Mark ends his story. It just ends there. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out, fled from the tomb, said nothing because they were afraid. My guess is that's where Peter wanted the story left. And I think it's because it leaves you and I in the position, after walking through all of this over these weeks, of answering the question for ourselves. Now, who do you say he is? Jesus resurrected right like can we be honest it, it's i mean it's a hard story to believe but if it's true it changes everything i mean if you reorient your life around the truth because then this really is a new final and eternal king there is a new kingdom that has come in part now and in full soon if there is there is hope beyond measure there is hope beyond what we can see you see, if Jesus isn't resurrected, then, I mean, enter the story. If Jesus isn't resurrected, what hope is there? Because all that you actually see is all that there is. The scriptures actually tell you if Jesus isn't resurrected, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. 
If Jesus isn't resurrected, then the kingdoms of this world, the way they run, they win. Might makes right will always be right. Darwin called it survival of the fittest. You want to be great? Well, then greatness is what you make of yourself. It's the name you carve out for yourself. It's the kingdom that you can build for yourself. Now, every Easter, I try to walk you through the veracity of the resurrection, why it has to be true. It has to be true. The Christian Post last week put out an article entitled, and I, I encourage you to read it because I don't have time to go through it, Jesus Christ's Resurrection, the Best Documented Event of Ancient History. It shares some things. I'll just point out a couple. Things like, Jesus being absolutely unique in history. He's the only person who was pre-announced starting a thousand years before he was born with over a hundred prophetic accounts from 18 different prophets from the Old Testament predicting the specifics of his birth, his life, and his death. Hundreds of years later, the details of Jesus' birth, life, betrayal, and death validate these prophecies in surprisingly accurate and minute detail. I talked to you about one of them Friday night. 1,000 year, 1, years B.C. David prophetically wrote about the crucifixion of Christ. David wrote that Jesus would be crucified 100 years before the Persians came up with crucifixion. The New Testament provides accounts from multiple sources who witnessed Jesus firsthand after the resurrection. In fact, Jesus, according to, to, to the gospel writers, made at least 10 separate appearances to his disciples between the resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And it didn't just go on for like a couple of days. It went on for a month and a half. Jesus was walking around for a month and a half. Some of those appearances were into individual disciples. Some were to several at a time. And once he showed up, to 500 people at a time. This is why the gospel writers keep saying, these people are still alive, fact check me. Go find out. He was around for a month and a half, yet we don't have any records of anybody denying this. And of course, for me, the thing that, like, if you ask me, why are you so sure? I mean, let me ask you, what happened to Peter and the disciples, right? Not one of them that first Easter morning believed he was alive. Not one of them went to the grave saying, well, here it is, it's the third day. Jesus, come out, come out wherever you are. No. A couple of brave women went to prepare his body. And to prepare it for what? To prepare it for eternity in a tomb. Yet here's what the other gospel writers share. The other gospel writers, other than Mark, say that seeing and talking to and touching the risen Jesus transformed them, and they committed the rest of their lives to going and making disciples. Eleven of the twelve of them, including Matthias, who replaced Judas, all of them, all eleven, including Peter on his own cross, died as martyrs for their beliefs in the divinity of Christ. You have to ask yourself, they would not even go to his grave the first Easter Sunday. Three days later, something changed enough for them all now willingly to go to their own. There is no other explanation than the resurrection. But, but I want to leave you, I, I go through this every Easter, I, I, I want to leave you with a new one this morning. It, it's kind of a personal one for me, um, and it also has to do with, with my own desire, your desire, the disciples' desire to be great as judged by the kingdoms of the world. It, it's a warning, I think, because their desire, my desire, maybe your desire for greatness, as, as measured by the world, 
It can make you miss them. As some of you know, especially if you were here Friday night, my son John is actually in Israel this weekend. He actually just texted me as, as uh, we were coming in this morning saying he, he just, um, just worshipped Jesus uh, in Jerusalem on Easter morning. Friday night, we were a bit terrified because there had been a terrorist attack um, right where he was, where he had last told us he was. And, uh, and all of the reports came back that everyone hurt and killed were all tourists and that the one person that died was a man around John's age. We couldn't get John on the phone. We couldn't get him on text. Even his Snapchat mat had gone dark right around the time of, attack, of the attack. And so I showed up for Good Friday services terrified. Right before the service, he texted me that he was okay. He hadn't been where it had happened. But for a few minutes, oh boy. And so yesterday morning, we were texting, and he was sharing about his experience, and he sent me this picture. Now, he does not know I'm sharing this with the... <laughs> He's going to kill me. <laughs> he does not know I'm sharing this with around 1,000 people this morning. <laughs> it's a picture of him in Jerusalem where all of these stories and Mark that we've gone through over these last weeks have taken place. And if you can see in the background, you can actually see what's... Oh, can you put that back up? You can see what's called the Dome of the Rock over there on the left with the gold top on it. Now, I don't know how much you know about history, but the Dome of the Rock, this Islamic shrine, it's actually built right on top of the Temple Mount. It's actually built right on the ground where the first and then the second temple in Jerusalem stood. That is the site. That is the place where Jesus taught, where Jesus healed, that's where Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and then went into the temple to clear the table short, or temple shortly after, that's the temple he cleansed. It stood right there. John was feet from it. Now, you have to understand how big a deal that to, the, to the people the, in, in, in Israel the, the Jewish temple was. It was where they believed that, that the presence of God dwelt. It was the center of everything. There in the, in the center of the, the temple stood the Holy of Holies, where they believed God was. Only the high priest could go in only one time a year. And it was at the temple where everyone went to get right with God. It's where every Israelite went every Passover weekend, just like this weekend, to play their part in a religious system that they were under. And they would go and purchase for themselves and their families an animal to be sacrificed so that they could be made right with God. The temple... It sat at the center of the city, at the center of their faith, and at the center of their culture. And it was this temple that Matthew says Jesus compared himself to in, well, in a blasphemous kind of way. As you remember, we, we talked about how this King Jesus is bringing this new thing into town, this new teaching, and it's driving the religious leaders crazy. At one point, after his disciples have been picking grain and eating on the Sabbath, after Jesus had healed someone on the Sabbath, he's confronted by the temple rulers for all of these religious rules, these temple rules that he's breaking. And Jesus, Jesus makes a statement that could get a guy crucified. He looks at them and he goes, I'll tell you something, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. He's talking about himself. I mean, again, a threat to the faith, a threat to the nation, a threat to their culture, a threat to the peace. The temple, the, the way it sat on the mount, it was built on, you could see it from everywhere. It was extraordinary. 
Here's a model of what it looks like. I mean, can you imagine 2,000 years ago? In, in some places, those walls were up to 100 feet tall. And what made it a modern marvel, a wonder of the world, was that it was constructed of these huge cut stones, some of them 14 feet long, up to 500 tons. It was the superstructure of its day. The temple, I mean, look, the temple, if you want to know what was great, the temple was great. And it made a name for the Israelites. Which is what makes a conversation that Jesus had at that temple, right behind where John was staying, pretty interesting. One day they were there, right behind where John took the picture. And, and Peter says, Mark, here's what happened. We were in the temple, and as we were leaving, one of us, one of his disciples said, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. I mean, they were in awe of the place, right? And likely, look, this is post, post them realizing Jesus is the Messiah, right? They're not only thinking of the place, they're thinking of the roles they're going to have in this great place. They're going to be, pl they're going to be great in this place of greatness. And what comes next is just... One more reason, you should believe that Jesus is the king he said he was. Peter never got to see this, okay? Peter made the declaration before he found out about this, but you're going to hear it this morning. Jesus said, you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And the Greek word there is very specific. Not, not come down, not fall down by some natural disaster, but thrown down. Every one of these stones will be thrown down, like on purpose, which if you're there, there's no way, right? There's no way this place is going to be thrown down. There was no force capable of it. It was, it was too grand. It was too protected. It was the, the center of their world. Herod had built it with the permission of the Romans. They were on board. I mean, it would be like if somebody took you to New York City and showed you the skyline and, and said, yeah, the entire city, it's, there's not going to be one building standing. They're all coming down. Your reaction would be their reaction. What? How could that happen? Who could do it? And if that happens, what's it mean for us? They wandered in fear like you and I would. So Peter says as they walk up the Mount of Olives outside the temple, again, probably not far from where John took that picture, in their fear, he says, Peter tells Mark, as, John, as, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, um, hey, about that whole thing with the temple? When, when's that going to happen? And what's going to be the sign that it's about to be fulfilled? And Jesus gave him an answer. You should go read it. It's in Luke chapter 21. It's a pretty scary answer. He speaks of an army that's going to surround the city. He speaks of how horrible things are going to be in the city. It's really scary stuff. I mean, it almost sounds like you're reading some Left Behind novel, right? It'd be easy to dismiss it as an unfulfilled promise of Armageddon. Here's the only problem. The only problem is everything Jesus said would happen, even all the things that seemed impossible, everything he said he would happen to that city and to that temple happened, and it happened exactly as he said it would happen, exactly. 70 years later, about 40 years after Mark has, has written down Peter's account, 70 years later, in the midst of a Jewish rebellion against Rome, Rome sent in its 10th legion. It rounded up the rebels and built a wall around the city to seal it off. And then Roman general Vespasian invaded the city, and they killed everyone they could. 
Josephus, the Jewish historian, he said that they killed over 1.1 million people. Things were so bad in the city, Josephus said, the majority of people killed themselves, jumping into ravines. There was fire everywhere. They burnt the city to the ground, and then they headed to the temple to make a final stand, to, to show the Israelites who was really in charge. They burned the temple to the ground. All that was left of the temple were the things that wouldn't burn, the stones. But to ensure that the temple would function no more, to put an end once and for all to these Jewish people and their faith, the Roman soldiers took the stones, these massive stones, from the buildings and the walls, and they threw them off the mount into the ravine. You can go there today. Those stones are still lying there. You should go home and read this. It's completely true. Right where the southwestern corner of the temple was. Thrown down exactly as Jesus said they were. And do you know why this is so amazing? Do you know why I'm sharing with this you, with, on Easter morning? It's because Mark didn't. Peter didn't tell him about Jesus being right. I mean, he didn't say, Peter didn't say, oh, and Jesus was right. And you know why he didn't? Because it hadn't happened yet. And Luke, right, he gives all of the details about what's going to happen in the city. Luke easily could have said, and this is all verified but what happened in the city when the Romans came in. Luke didn't, didn't validate Jesus' prophecy. Mark didn't. Luke didn't. Matthew, he didn't. He prophesied this. Matthew said that Jesus prophesied it, didn't say that it happened. Why? Well, Here's what you should know. Lots of skeptics have said that the Gospels, these historic accounts, Peter, John, Matthew, and Luke, they said that these accounts are written hundreds of years after Jesus and that the writers were simply shaping their writings to fit an agenda. But if they did that, there would be no way to leave out the fulfillment of this incredible prophecy. Jesus said he was greater than the temple. He said it would be thrown down, and he nailed it with every detail. Friends, if these were concocted stories... They would have had to, they would have wanted to make sure to say, right, that this happened. And none of them did. It happened just the way Jesus said. He said he was greater, and he was. He said the sacrifice, he would replace the sacrificial system, and he did. It would no longer be deeded. He did come to inaugurate a new and better kingdom. He is a new and better king. They didn't write it because it didn't happen yet. But here's what we know. History proves it. You can go see it. My son was there yesterday. It happened exactly the way Jesus said it would happen. You know, this is real. Someone should call the New York Times. (laughs) Really? And why did he tell Peter this? Because Peter and the guys were looking around at the temple, and they were in awe of the greatness, its grandeur, its strength, and its power. Jesus looks around and goes, this is nothing. There is a new kingdom and a better king. Come, follow me. Who is this man? Who is this king? It's the question of Easter. It's the question of eternity. Peter just leaves it hanging. He never even got to see it. The gospel is news. There is a new king and a new kingdom. The resurrection is news. Jesus is alive and well. It all went down just the way he said he would. It's all true. Hard to believe, but more than verifiable. It's true. And now the question is this. What will you do? Will you reorient your life around it? Who is this man? He's the king. And it changes everything. Do you know him? 
Dr. S.M. Lockridge, he was pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego. He preached a fairly famous message in 1976. It was on the Lord's Prayer. And when he got to the conclusion of the message, some of you have heard it. He spoke about thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He began to try to get his congregation to understand and see Jesus the way Peter wanted us to, as a king and a kingdom. And he kept trying to get his congregation to answer the question that Peter's been trying to get us to answer. Do you know who this is? I don't know if you know the message, but, but this Easter over the last month, I can't get his conclusion out of my head. And so as we close, I'm going to close with his conclusion. Jesus, the king, is resurrected. It's true. You know, someone should call the New York Times. You can't believe this is real. Jesus, the king, is alive. Do you know him? 